This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I'll sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is an L.A.-based writer, comedian, and horror fan who likes to meld the sinister with the absurd. Beautiful welcomes to David Kane. Hello. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's delightful to have you. I've uh, enjoyed our uh, brief correspondences up until now, and it's uh, going to be a delight and pleasure to talk to you today about the film we have in mind. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. I am all jacked up on this movie. I've been thinking about it all month. I've been <laughs> writing so many notes. It's so perfect for your project. I'm a huge fan of it, of your project. Oh, thank you. And yeah, and um, I've also just been, I've been watching like lots of horror this month thinking about your everything you've been saying on the show you know it's actually affecting my lens when it comes to uh oh. the genre oh that's thank oh, you that's the goal that's a big uh <laughs> ego boost for me thank you for that uh really happy to hear it that's the goal is to see if we can get people to just try to reevaluate the way they watch films especially horror films before we get into the film that we're going to discuss today, which I'm really looking forward to hearing what all you've uh, written down about it, uh, I do like to kick off each episode with a quote that pertains to our topic, usually from philosophy, and today is no different. As you listeners are very aware, I tend to uh, take my time with this, and today is no different. In fact, I think this time it's actually the longest quote I've had so far. <laughs> so we're going way back, back to antiquity back to some of the earliest philosophy. But uh, here we go. Let's get into this quote. And uh, hopefully we can try to make the link with this film. I think it links pretty well, but we'll get into who said it and, and all that a little bit later. But first, here it is. Let us suppose an ugly soul, dissolute, unrighteous, teeming with all the lusts, torn by internal discord, beset by the fears of its cowardice and envies of its pettiness thinking only of the perishable and the base, perverse in all its impulses, the friend of unclean pleasures, living the life of abandonment to bodily sensation and delighting in its deformity. What must we think but that all this shame is something that has gathered about the soul, some foreign bane outraging it, soiling it, so that it has no longer a clean activity or a clean sensation? but commands only a life smoldering dully under the crust of evil. That, sunk in the manifold of death, it no longer sees what a soul should see, may no longer rest in its own being. Dragged ever towards the outer, the lower, the dark. Again, I will reveal who said this in just a moment and talk a little bit about what that all means. <laughs> I just wanted to bring that in there, but I did feel it has a, a little bit to do with today's topic. But be again, before we get to the topic, let's talk a little bit in general about you, David. So 
what is uh, your relationship with this wonderful genre that uh, we tend to explore here on this podcast? Uh, how, how did you first uh, start getting into horror? So when I was a kid, uh, I saw Jaws, and it was seared into my mind because it was the first time I saw a kid die in a movie. It, yep. it might have been my <laughs> first confrontation with mortality, uh, mm. and the kid dies hard. <laughs> And I loved the movie, and it was because you know it was it was man confronting this this monstrous force. I also I don't remember how young I was, but I was young enough to mishear, misunderstand the opening scene where the the first victim is killed, and as she's thrashing in the water, I thought she was saying Jaws, no, Jaws, no. And as oh. a kid, I was like, Jaws is the name of this shark, a local neighborhood shark who has lost his mind and started attacking people. And that's the horror is that no one knows why. Because I mean, that's and that fits into the movie because no, no one knows why the shark has started killing people. But as a kid, I, I misheard that, but it fit into my viewing. And I've always, from then on, have sought out movies that I felt like I shouldn't watch. When you're a kid, mm. R is this ominous shadow that looms over you. And it's it's so the like every genre has a pledge. And the pledge of horror is to scare you. And it's so right. titillating to be like, this is a feeling I'm not supposed to feel. My body doesn't want to feel this. And I'm going to make my body feel it. Like a roller coaster. But but a horror has you confront these ideas like mortality or, or the monstrous and you you face them and survive them. And I think that as a fan community, we would like watching characters survive something because we want to, too. Oh, for sure. Yes. I, I love how you put that. that, that, that confrontation, that element of horror is something that has driven me throughout my entire studies as well. It's uh, something that I came across really early on in my studies for film studies they talked about the paradox of horror. So that paradox being that why do we seek out something that is unpleasurable to us, something that actually causes us to you know, be confronted with these darker shades of ourselves or of just the horrible parts of reality, such as mortality and the evils that people can bestow upon each other. It's been an interesting path and journey to get there. So it's really lovely to hear your own perspective as a fan, you know, from that young age, it, it, it just clicked. That's right there from the very beginning. You see something that's terrible and here you still are <laughs> talking about horror now on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. And, and in Jaws, they, you know, they win and it, there, it feels good at the end. As a kid, I, I feel like had it ended on a more cynical note, I would have been more shaken. And as I matured as a person, I definitely was seeking out like, okay, what's the dark stuff? You know, what's the mm -hmm. stuff that is trying to say something more than, yay, we beat the evil, you know, that the nature of evil being so much more complex than just a battle between the light and the dark. Right. Especially when it comes to like, who is the monster? You know, what dimensions does the monster have? Oh, and Jaws is a great, great movie for that, considering you're looking at nature just doing its thing and we're doing everything in our power to suppress it. And at the same time, we're doing everything in our power to keep each other safe, except we're not. That was the whole point of that film is to show how corporate systems really are more evil than any, you know, man eating shark could ever be. It's just doing what it does. And and like the yeah, the that and Alien. When I was a little bit older, mm -hmm. I snuck I snuck Alien. Like I watched it alone and it completely terrified me. Because in <laughs> Jaws is set in our world, an alien transports you, but it tells the, a very similar story of like, first it's versus some kind of nature, 
uh, and then the second twist through being the company doesn't care about us. Uh, and, and that double pincer mm-hmm. of like, you know, you're alone in the universe and everything out there wants to kill you. Uh, and, and that's, yeah. As a creator, as a writer, I, I love comedy, but I think it's a cousin genre with horror because they're both structured on surprise. You're not expecting mm-hmm. the punchline in the same way that you're not expecting the scare. Um, so I've, and, and especially with tone, they're both movies that love crafting tone genres that love crafting the tone that the viewer is supposed to feel right there with you. I actually come from a comedy background myself. I have over like 10 years performing improv in front of audiences and stuff. And it was funny how horror has always been a part of my life. And comedy was a great kind of escapist genre for me as a kid. But the more I watched it, the more I emulated it, the more I wanted to, you know, be Jim Carrey and be Robin Williams and all these stars on SNL at the time that I was watching it, at least. And uh, yeah, in my studies as well, I've come across that there is that line between the two of them. They're kind of two sides of the same coin to a degree. And it's that surprise you're talking about. Incongruity is a huge part of both of them. The major difference, of course, being that in comedy, there's always a sense of safety there at the end of the punchline. And in horror, you're just immediately confronted with something. Or if you're not, then it's played for a laugh. And that laugh is there to disarm you for when shit gets real, basically. (laughs) Yeah, I think they both approach Dionysian uh, levels of consciousness. It's Mm, like, mm -hmm. you know, send the audience into fits of laughter or fits of screaming. I took a class on the on grotesque literature. Oh, nice. We we studied Kafka. We watched Eraserhead. Um, and one aspect of it that like shot straight into my brain was uh, the audience when experiencing the grotesque isn't sure if they should laugh or scream. It, yeah. It's it's ridiculous in a way that uh, attacks a very deep part of them, and they are uncertain of how to respond, which is a disorienting experience. And that's the yeah horror and comedy disorient people in in various ways. Yes, yes. I love that you brought up the grotesque. That's actually one of the gateways to me even starting this podcast was, so I took a course on the beautiful in film. And that was the one that I thought, oh, well, I just need some credits and I'm doing philosophy with film. And sure, I'll do the beautiful, even though I I was pretty sure that we were going to talk about films that I would probably never watch otherwise. I knew it was going to be a lot of like foreign art house films, you know, very slow nice, gentle films. And there were quite a few of those. Uh, But before that was a course that I was really eager to take, which was the grotesque in the arts. And in that one, we analyzed very similar concepts of the grotesque. We didn't watch a lot of movies, unfortunately, in that one, but we did talk about some examples. But what I liked with my professor there, she mentioned that if we were to look at the grotesque as a sort of liminal space between beauty and the sublime you have that whereas beauty is this kind of gasp this oh that you're awestruck the grotesque is a shiver and i loved that description of it that it's this kind of and you don't really know what to do with it because on one hand you're drawn to it otherwise we wouldn't be drawn to anything tim burton's ever made basically you know he does a lot of kids stuff and yet we're still drawn into the big googly eyes and the the misshapen characters that he has, but we're also repelled by them too. They're very off-putting and we wouldn't want to see them in our daily lives because it doesn't fit within the mold of reality, basically this, this form of hybridization. And you're right. Horror plays with that a lot too. Yeah. Seeing something we shouldn't 
uh, that's like that was yeah. the voice in my head of like you are not allowed to watch this and that for cross that forbidden line you know man was not meant to know these truths i love I, you know <laughs> and love that oh yeah that's some of the best form of horror out there it's the unknowable you know i think we're nice and warmed up so tell everybody david what film are we talking about then with all of these high concepts that we're bringing to the table we are talking about the debut feature from writer-director Penos Cosmatos, Beyond the Black Rainbow. Oh, Beyond the Black Rainbow, indeed. I, I love a movie whose title is fun to say. <laughs> right? And Cosmatos, apart from maybe Mandy, uh, you know, <laughs> visually it's always fun to look at, but I, I'm not surprised that he would also make such a wonderfully kind of vague and... and artistic title for this as well it draws you in yeah it really does it the the title is an invitation uh and and that's the thing is you accept the invitation at your peril which is the entire genre yeah, pretty much yeah and i love that this was a nice mix of genres too uh so yeah this was a first time viewing for me i watched it a couple days ago and then i watched it again today just kind of like absorb it and really focus more on the aesthetic parts now that the story was a little bit more ingrained in my head um and i have to say yeah this was an interesting film to watch and a lovely beautiful rich example of what we like to talk about around here too and uh that quote that i brought into i can't wait to unpack these things but for anybody who hasn't seen this particular film i know that mandy's the more popular of the two and that's why i picked this one yeah i'm really happy you did I want more people to know about it. It's also a warning, a, t- a tough watch. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, it's cliche to call a movie bold, but I think this movie is bold because it is boring sometimes, or it can be. <laughs> like, like the, and, and in multiple interviews talking about it, he said, I know that's a lot to ask of an audience. And the movie asks a lot mm-hmm. of, its, of its viewer to stay in. And I, mm. that's the thing. I, I, one of the reasons why I loved it on my first viewing was I was like, I'm here. I know not everyone who started it is here, but I'm here. That's yeah. I, I picked it because also I could talk about this movie for hours, and I will. <laughs> well, we have time. That's good. Uh, but my yeah, my partner also had the, that feeling of it being a little slow. Uh, she was just saying a moment ago, watching it with me this for my second viewing. She's like, "This is not a movie I think I would ever pick up myself to like." Normally, I wouldn't sit through this, but she knew that it was going to be for the podcast and. It did draw her in enough that it kept her going. But there was one moment that I remember somebody was just like leaving a space and I had to walk around and put my setup together. And I think that took me about five ish, 10 ish minutes. And I went into the office and I came and gathered my stuff. And then I came back out like, oh, are they still in the doorway? Like, I I think I know exactly what moment you're talking about. And that was part of it. My my wife was also (laughs) bored. I was worried. I was I showed it to my wife and I was like, did I pick the wrong movie for the podcast? But um, it's like. That's it. I, I I applaud because it I, I don't know it, w- watching it amid so many movies that are desperate to appease its audience to to mm-hmm. presume what its audience's sensibilities are and then and this movie came along it I just think that he asks a lot of his audience and it's like it's great when a filmmaker trusts its viewer so much yeah I do appreciate that and that's a you know most of my favorite filmmakers do the same thing uh, so again for those of you who haven't seen it I have tried to make a synopsis for this film. The problem with making a synopsis for it is that I could pretty much just tell you the whole plot of the film and maybe like three sentences. It's a very simple story, which is where the aesthetics actually thrive is that 
it has a very sensual or sensuous sort of existence. And that part of it is vital to the whole experience of the film so that you understand the significance of the story a lot better. So if this sounds very vague, it's intentional. The movie's not quite as vague as what I'm about to say to you, but still for those who have not seen it, here is a brief synopsis and uh, decide for yourselves. If you just want to plow through and listen to our spoilers or go watch it first. Uh, I can highly advise you to do that, though, because this movie is just worth watching blind, for sure. Um, here we go. 1983. An enigmatic and sensuous scientist by the name of Dr. Barry Nile oversees and experiments on the young, helpless Elena. Elena remains captive in a sterile cell underneath the earth. Why is she here? What is Dr. Nile's goal? All becomes clearer as we follow Dr. Niles' descent into madness and attempts to transcend to a higher purpose. His and Elena's metaphysical journey toward true freedom ultimately begs the question, who would you be if you came face to face with the divine? I love that synopsis. Thank you. That's the best way I could put it. <laughs> One of the things I love about this movie is that it is hard to talk about. So many plot points, if you can call them that, are... Um, assumptions on based on the viewer and you you have to like zone in on what you think you saw what information you think you got from an image and think about how much of that knowledge was from the movie and how much of that knowledge was you filling in space um mm -hmm. and that like i've read so many i've met, read lots of reviews and lots of synopsises where people got details different and i've been both that's wrong. It happened this way. And wait a second, I thought it happened this way. And I think you might be right. And there's also moments where it's like, I don't, I think the movie might be so vague that no one knows what happened there. Um, and, <laughs> and that like, that, that's, that's a feature, not a bug. And it's absolutely a movie where everyone who's watched it has had a shared hallucination in which we're trying to piece together what happened sense-wise and then what knowledge mm -hmm. we shall take from that data there's a lot of space for projection in this film if you project your own knowledge or desires or personality traits onto particular characters or moments of course like any really wonderfully wild kind of synth wavy film like this there's also a lot of imagery in here that could be very vague it could be very clear depending on the things that you know and the different esoteric knowledge that you have, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that is exactly what that is. It's just there to kind of strike some sort of chord in you to fill in those blanks so that you get the details that are clear. And then from there you can piece together intent and motivation as you go along. Yeah. And there are, that's the, I think what's so great is it's not just confusing all around. There are unambiguous things that you know are obvious and like you said in your a lot of a lot of the plot synopsis is to have this spinal column of information that mm -hmm. the movie is very clear about but it's all orbited by these these ambiguous satellites of of information that are hinted at and i've seen it like four or five times now and there's stuff that i didn't realize until my fourth viewing and that colored mm -hmm. my entire experience of and i was like god i've been wrong about this the whole time <laughs> which which is like yeah if you're if you haven't watched it and you're listening you're like what the fuck is this movie that's it it's such a great mystery of a film it's a an artifact from the past yes it's definitely an artifact of the past and it's so much of a mystery of a film 
that even the synopsis that is official doesn't really tell the story of the film. It says just straight up like Elena wakes up and discovers that she's being held captive and wonders what's going on. I'm like, that's not how this movie starts at all. That's not even true. That, exactly. <laughs> this, this sort of like uh, the, the shared knowledge, the, the, the clouds of information passing through each other and realizing like what's that there's an exo psychology experiment. That's like having a group of people, you know, walk down a hallway into a room and be told, uh, picture that hallway you just walked down and, and list the mm-hmm. items you've seen, list information about that hallway um, and everyone does it. And it's, you know, to show we all walked down a different hallway because we all have a right. different, we all experience reality our way. Um, we just have, we, we, but we exist in consensus reality. Um, and this is, this movie has this like jamming signal that, that, that scatters everyone's experience of reality. Which is a actual plot point of the film as well. Uh, so to add some clarity for people who are listening, uh, in case there are some people who are like, I just wanted to listen to this and didn't actually watch it. There is an actual jamming thing in here. So Elena has some sort of either mental powers or something. All that we know is that she has some sort of strange abilities that has caused her to be kept captive in this scientific chamber so it's a it's a throwback to things like firestarter you know you can see uh references in stranger things and in other movies of this nature a, a phenomena comes in there tons of early cronenberg yes um, lots of cronenbergian stuff in here and to keep her at bay there's this pyramid that seems to create some sort of a signal that keeps her powers from basically just melting everybody as <laughs> she gets emotional uh, and that jamming device, I-, I liked how you pointed out that it's actually something that affects the viewer as well, just because it's such a vague film that you don't really know what the purpose of most of the stuff is. All you're going to be able to tell. I think that this podcast might be the perfect way to watch it because I was just so focused on the aesthetics that I followed along. I felt pretty okay just because I was like, okay, oh, well, yeah, you know, based on the sound and the images here and this, I just kind of vied with the mood the whole way through, you know? So if I can, yeah, if I can, if I can go on a bit of a rant. Okay. The way that information is given to the viewer in this movie, there's a pattern. It follows from dialogue to the cinematography of scenes to the way the plot is constructed where it's non-linear. You are given pieces of information Hmm. that you don't understand and then later, like, for example, a character will start a sentence mumbling and you won't understand yeah. the first word. So you write off that first word, but then you do understand the next two words. So you retroactively go, oh, he must have said that first word in order for this, co- this sentence to have continuity. Mm-hmm. And scenes open, many of the scenes open with textures, close-ups on objects within yeah. a room. And the viewer is instantly unsure of what they're seeing. They, 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 they see color and, and shapes. And sometimes, you know, like there's a bowl of meat that there's a close-up of that. And you're like, mm-hmm. okay, it's meat. That, yeah. And you don't see it's a bowl, but it zooms out and you see it's a bowl on a counter. And you yeah, go, okay. And, it, <laughs> and, and your, your brain is catching up with the pace. The movie slows down your, the pace of your consciousness to its level and controls what information it gives you. Um, on a, for, you know, on the level of dialogue, on the level of of, a, of shots in a scene, and then on the plot, you you see a character and you come up with an impression of them, and then later learns learn 
past like Nile. You you see Barry Nile, mm-hmm. and what I love is one of the most unambiguous moments in the opening is he's walking down a hallway bathed in scarlet light, and a scary synth tone is played, and the viewer yeah. is like evil. Like evil. that man is that man is evil, and you're right. The movie was not mysterious about that. This is an evil man. But then you learn, you know, my, more details about him as the movie goes forward, so that what you have your first impression changes shape based on the new information. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine who watched it said it was like it was like being in Plato's cave, where he thought he knew what reality, you know, that he was he was shown one shape, but then as the movie expanded, he realized he was in a labyrinth of information that was constantly changing his experience of the movie at every moment. It's psychotronic cinema at its finest. Ooh, you see, now that, that could be on a poster right there. Psychotronic cinema at its finest. I like that a lot. I want to write a book of essays about the movies of Panos Cosmatos. He needs to make more. Uh, and I'm going to title it A Poisoned Nostalgia, which was a quote, mm. a, a quote from an interview he did where he described Black Rainbow. He was trying to go for a poisoned okay. nostalgia. And I think he hit the nail on the head because what I loved about that, uh, we could talk a little bit about the nostalgia of it. So the beyond just the aesthetics of it, I will touch that briefly, but I do have a, a rather specific thing that it caught me. The aesthetic, of course, is to emulate the the graininess of old 80s cameras and TVs and monitors. Hell, there's even one moment that my partner said, like, man, the quality of these, these security cameras. And she's like, wait, wait, it's 1983, of course. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah exactly. They used lenses from the 70s uh, to film the movie. So Perfect, because you should always get older tech for a time period that you're trying to do, since most likely places are going to use cheaper, older tech in reality. But the point I wanted to get to is that they they give a lot of information with Elena of how they try to gaslight her about what reality is. And I feel that the film through a lot of the dialogue, if that's all you focus on for most of it, you're going to get caught up and swept away thinking this is some sort of alternate reality, post-apocalyptic view on 1983. And then when you're in Dr. Niles house later in the film, they have footage of Reagan talking about the war and talking about commerce And you think, see, there's even more proof of this. And then when Elena gets outside, it's just a normal day, normal houses, people watching TV. Like, I love it. I love that so much about how this movie makes you believe constantly. This is not based in your reality. It's too bizarre. And they're like, no, this is this is your world. You live in the apocalypse, basically. Yeah, uh, I I couldn't have put it better, but I'm going to try. One of the other reasons I picked this movie is because I it did trick me. Um, I was, Hmm. I I watched it like six years ago. I was making a habit of going to video stores and buying like really cheap DVDs. And I just watched From Beyond, the really great uh, Stuart Gordon movie. And I loved that. And it was definitely the beyond, like just these schlocky fun to say titles that I saw Black Rainbow. And the I thought the date on it was when the DVD was made. But I, and I love going in blind, but I looked at the cover and was like, okay, this was made in 1983. And I put put it in my DVD player and I watched the, and the opening of the movie is a black screen with 1983. And my brain went, okay, this is where we are. This is when this was made. And I watched the entire mm. movie and it was the next day where I wanted to learn more about it. And I looked it up and saw that it was made 10 years ago. 
I had actually entered a false reality. I'd created a false reality with the help of this movie in which this was a lost Christian Bale movie. Uh, cause Michael Rogers looks Thank a lot. Thank you. Yeah. No, no, no. I, <laughs> I was the first thing I said in my first viewing, I was like, is this movie meant to trick people into thinking Christian Bale did this movie? Mm-hmm. And I, I like that. I actually it blew my mind. It's a cliche to say it, but I was completely pulled into this movie's reality which and it does it does like craft its own false reality of you know this was made back then um and sells it the aesthetics of the past are its disguise Mm. that's a good one yeah i see where you're going with that that is a great disguise for it as well and help look at barry he literally disguises himself as the past self he was in 1966 before he did the experiment so he wears this terrible wig to get his terrible 60s hair back and i loved when they revealed that all of the like all of it's in prosthetics and i have to wonder if the actor really was just wearing like prosthetic eyebrows and stuff throughout the whole film he's a weird looking dude yeah he always looks off that's the thing is like yeah in in the first scene there's a close-up of him in the first scene he's in there's a close-up and his makeup looks bad and his wig looks fake yeah and i i Mm -hmm. think that that's a deliberate choice to lull the viewer into this sense of like especially when you watch movies from the past you, you're looking back on it. You're safe from yeah. it. There's a there's a quote from a film historian uh, I can't remember that's the the limits of the past generation become the aesthetics of the present, okay. and w- yeah. which is a, a bit about nostalgia, but also like this movie weaponizes mm. the aesthetics of the past, and you see his bad makeup, and you're like, okay, I can see the seams of this movie, but then you learn that's actually a feature within it, um, and the the movie gets weirder and weirder as it goes further like it, it stops looking like an 80s movie and starts doing things like the, yeah. the, the 1966 flashback is unlike anything that was made back then so when i was watching still thinking it was made in the 80s i was like this is ahead of its time <laughs> makes cronenberg look like a very just a simpleton right <laughs> right yeah no i think i that's the thing is i was like this is truly a lost gem it's designed like a lost gem somebody dusted a yeah. gem tossed it in a sandbox and i found it and went oh a lost gem and in a way it still is uh, if you consider all the films that came out in 2010 and it was on my radar when it came out i just never actually sought it out and and watched it it was one you know how it goes you you hear about a movie that you're really interested in and then you get caught up in other things and before you know it you forgot you were ever interested and then you hear about it again 10 years later and you're like oh yeah that movie i'm gonna watch this movie now and that makes it a lost gym of its time but yeah to dupe you in the 80s what I love the most about it is the I think the way it works and why it could do people is the fact that it is a lower budget film that has a high concept and high quality to it, that there are images in this film that you would think looking at it like this had to be some crazy graphics team doing this. But if you look closely, I'm like, is that just like a mold of somebody's head with a light inside of it? And then they put just some. I don't know, dry ice around it. Yes. That looks awesome. You know, and then you just reverse the image to make it kind of suck into its face and things like this. And those are very eighties techniques to trick the eye with practical effects. And yeah, there's that, that that you're not certain of what you're looking at. The movie is tricking. And that's the thing is the movie is tricking you as a part because it's, it contains characters that's tricking you. It's, it's got this cult, this mad scientist, these monsters, um, it's about trying to control reality. Mm-hmm. One of the pledges of horror is this movie's going to reach out of your TV and assault your senses. And then this movie does that, but it does it gently. It takes its time. 
Yeah, it's hypnotic. It's it's he he said he wanted to make a, the um, the movie version of trance music. Okay. And he's yeah he he said if if Black Rainbow is a experimental '70s synth album, then Mandy's Black Sabbath. Yes, it is. Oh, absolutely. In fact, they even give a little taste of Mandy when you get into like the reality at the end of the film with the two like stoners there around the campfire. Yeah. I have a friend who is very confused as to why the Heshers are in it. And I'm like, he likes heavy metal music. He likes metal. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, 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 I mean, I guess if you see both movies, it becomes a little clearer, but I, if this is the only one you're watching also, it's very indicative of the eighties. I mean, eighties was metals heyday. So it stands to reason if you're going to go wandering around randomly in the woods, you're probably going to find some metal kids with a bonfire just chilling out. That was pretty common, especially in suburbia, as we find out where they are. You know, you're just in the backyard of somebody's backyard at that moment anyway. So, yeah. And I always I, I love their inclusion because I, I love making parallels in movies. I feel like uh, maybe too much. Maybe it's a stretch, but it is dystopian where they think that they achieved mm-hmm. enlightenment and are going to save humanity. And, and they failed spectacularly. Um, yeah. And that the way Arborea ends up, it's just so pitiful and disgusting and that they're no better than losers doing drugs in the woods. And that's, that's like Ah, the the last two characters you meet are just that. Um, And that Barry is supposed to be, you know, this dark Lord of hell, but he's just a lunatic swinging a dagger at strangers. Yes. Which is made abundantly clear at the, at first, probably the most deflating ending I've ever seen in a film. And then I appreciated it the more time went on because it shows just how pathetic Barry really is and how you're not a God. You're not some harbinger of doom or anything. You're just a dude whose pupils got dilated. And now you're, you know, you're still tweaking. You're still having like an acid trip for the last 20 years, basically. Yeah. What's happening. yeah I, 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 <laughs> I love that. Cosmatos movies are definitely about drugs and about drug experiences, but the villains are mm-hmm. always the people who want you to do drugs. Um, don't <laughs> the, the lesson is always don't trust anyone who's trying to make you do acid. No, um, you should seek that out yourself. <laughs> right? Yeah, experiment responsibly and of your own accord. What what the viewer goes in with, this movie resonates with. So I I really love reading up about psychedelic philosophy. And the thinkers of the 60s, um, not nostalgic for it. I'm happy I didn't live then because it is very scary. <laughs> Both Barry and Dr. Arborea reminded me of Dr. Timothy Leary, the, the like scientist who was m- very famous for many reasons. But he was like the name that was studying acid in the 60s. Um, right. And he was hot. He was jailed when it became illegal. And uh, he became the like, hey, let's free our this could free humanity that's the arborea part this could Mm -hmm. free humanity but while in jail he started talking about like we're going to contact aliens and and like imagine looking up to him and then hearing that and that's like barry where you're this trustworthy scientist at first but there's something about especially because you're studying drugs that were invented 15 years ago so you're Mm -hmm. you're the only one who knows anything about them um, and I true, I do believe that he, you know, had good intentions and he, he wanted to help humanity, but he also had like five wives and he cheated on all of them. And his third wife's name was Rosemary, which I think is a, a Easter egg. Ah, it could be a reference. Yeah. yeah right. Sure. No, that's the thing. Again, going in, knowing certain things and going like, is that a coincidence? Is that planned? Is that a small thing? But Arborea is scarier to me than Barry. I mean, Barry is terrifying, but Ar- 
Dr. Arborea is this like, you only see him in three scenes and you, but you know everything about him where it's just, he thought he was going to cure the world and he fell so low and like is responsible for all of these people's death and degradations. Yes. But he's not going to face it because he's a drug addict. No disrespect to drug addicts, but he thought drugs were going to free humanity, but it just enslaved him. Um, and so he's no better than the Heshers in the woods. Right. They're even better off. I mean, they're just smoking weed. Like they're going to, they're going to go to work the next. Well, if they hadn't get killed, they gotten killed. They probably <laughs> gonna go to work the next day and done whatever they were planning on doing, you know, whereas Aborio's stuck in his chair. He has he's so far gone and so withered away that he has to depend on others to give him his drugs. Um, what I also found interesting about him was if we look at that flashback in 1966 when they're doing the experiment, he didn't do it. He got yes. very he indoctrinated a young well-to-do person to buy into every word that he said, go into this unknown gunk, just fuck his mind up. And then he dumps a baby in it just to see what would happen. Why, right after his wife is just unceremoniously killed right in front of him. His wife is killed and he, he comes in and you see him see the body. And then the next shot is him going, your mother's reabsorption into the cycle of life will not be for nothing. Mm -hmm. Like it just, it, it, you, it just skirts right past that scary. Yeah, that is so sociopathic. <laughs> and um, the that's the other thing. 1966 was the year LSD was illegalized in California. And Timothy oh. Leary, along with his associates, tried to form a religion in which taking mm. acid was the sacrament as an attempt right. to stop it from being illegalized. Um, <laughs> and that's like, imagine being alive then. The, the whole like hippies are scary. I... I I believe it because these these are very powerful substances and you have like scientists losing their minds because of it. Society's transforming in ways you don't understand. And anyone who says they understand it are either wrong or evil. Um, <laughs> Lying. Yes. Yeah. No. And Mercurio is a patriarch. And that's the thing is this is I think that the villains are always these toxic men who think they're in charge yes. or should be in charge and are either just like you know, irresponsible or downright taking advantage of systems. Yeah, exactly. They're either taking advantage of a system that is already in play. They have Reagan in the film for a reason. Uh, yeah. Or you have a person like Aborio who is creating systems to try to usher in a new reality and, and be the, the, the harbinger of some sort of enlightenment. I do find it interesting that his harbinger is a young girl instead of a boy usually you know these sorts of patriarchal figures would try to pass it on to another patriarch that you can continue that sort of lineage which may actually feed into why barry ends up the way he ends up because he gets no respect out of any of this uh, they don't really talk about his place in this at all he's still just you know he comes on in and he calls him mercurio and he he won't even talk to barry until he refers to him as dr uh, aborea yeah that that power play is still there even on his deathbed when he's the one who's just in captivity just as much as elena is at that point it's it's about how systems are enslave everyone is including the yeah. captors and how like uh barry is in charge and he hates it uh that's like his <laughs> it, it, yeah he's 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 repressing his true self which is i just want to kill everyone at that point for sure yeah i'm glad that you you caught on to like the, he's just taken over the facility. You get this beautiful, triumphant, the sentinots are sent in and take over. And um, Barry's standing there victoriously uh, 
you know, having having won. But then the next scene is him going downstairs and still being under Mercurio's foot. Um, and and like his insecurities and his everything he hates about where he, about his life are, are what are keeping him miserable. And I, I like mm-hmm. that the movie the movie, you know, he's a multidimensional villain where he's so scary. He's very gross. Uh, and he, but he's also very pitiable. Yes. And flashback reveals this is our Boria's fault that this just happened to him. And I, I was discussing it with my wife. Part of the questions of like evil, especially in this movie, is was it um, inherently within him, or did he become infected by it from outside? You know, he he goes to another world, as he says, and he has a theophany from a dark god. He he comes back like he has an ego death, and comes back. With like, I'm just going to kill everyone, and that's scary. That he, you believe him. That's that's truly uh, the crusade he's setting himself on. Um, well, I, if you don't mind, I, I I would love to jump in on something that you were just talking about because that whole yeah. ego death and coming back wanting to kill everybody. It it seems if you were to just watch this in a very flippant kind of okay, this is what happened kind of way, then you would just say, yeah, well, we need to have some sort of evilness of the character. But what I loved about it actually is that is that not what a true enlightened kind of harbinger of a new age would kind of do is they would look at what are the problems of society now and how do you purify? Well, if you look at nature, the only purification that exists is eradication. That's how viruses exist. That's how parasites exist. That's how anything that is in their nature to clean for themselves and to terraform basically is to destroy whatever is there this is an age old story as well. I mean, even Marvel comics have done it with, you know, characters like Ultron, where the whole point is the only thing that could save humanity is humanity not being there anymore. And although Barry doesn't have any grand grandiose speeches of this nature, I do feel that that is some sort of driving force behind his actions that we're not really getting to explore. Yeah. He's, he's a devil figure. He, he's a, he's, he's a Lieutenant of God and uh, he's fallen, and the ironic part is God doesn't even know. Um, he, and, <laughs> okay. yeah, our, yeah, and that, yeah, and that's what's scary because Arboria is is he's the father of Elena, as is revealed. Sorry, spoilers. And yeah, you brought up her being a girl. I read a not uh, an analysis of the movie via Gnosticism, very ancient. Okay, um, I can re- see why. Yeah, a- ancient religious philosophy and the bare bones of that to sum up an incredibly ancient and uh, complicated uh, tradition <laughs> is that the universe is the mind of God and we all contain a divine spark uh, of, of God. And, and when we cultivate that or discover that, you know, we grow closer to God. And also a lot of natural philosophers follow that tradition of like the more we learn about the universe, the closer to God we are. That analysis took Barry's confrontation with the divine as he was knowing the mind of God and it ripped him to pieces. Um, mm-hmm. the, the analysis put Elena as Sophia, who is God's wisdom. Mm. And that because it's hard to know the mind of God, but when we are acquainted with our wisdom and Athena fits into that um, archetype as well, yeah. uh, where because Athena sprouted from the mind of Zeus, and we contain wisdom in ourselves, and that's our connection to the divine. Um, and Elena is innocent, pure, quotes. I mean, she's she was born in this cult, so she knows nothing else. And her journey no. is, to, is to escape from being trapped, um, kept away from reality. And what I love, I love that her journey is from this simulated world into an uncontrolled environment of nature. When she gets out, she touches mud. 
and she sees bugs and she looks up at the mm-hmm. at the universe and she's so happy and it's because she's finally um has a unfiltered connection to reality which you know Barry was trying to be in control of which i think applies to your whole project of like our connection to beauty should have no filters language is a filter our words fail yes. at capturing the beautiful so just experience it exactly Okay, now I want to dig my claws into that quote that I brought in because I think you've set up the stage really, really well because uh, the quote comes from um, Plotinus, which uh, he was a Hellenistic philosopher who really talked about more about metaphysics, oneness, being the soul, things of this nature. But uh, of course, part of the human experience is emotion and artistry and creativity comes into that as well. So then therefore things like beauty become a topic of discussion. And I was doing some research and I was really struggling to find a quote that I felt like, what could I get with this? And either people were more vague than this movie was, or just didn't quite touch it the right way. And then I read this one from Plotinus and I was this is it. This is Barry basically in essence is what I've uh, written out. This quote is him taking a step aside when he's actually trying to talk about the nature of beauty and saying, okay, if you're not understanding me yet, how about I explain to you then what the opposite of what I've already told you would look like? So what would an ugly soul look like? How would we experience this if we had an ugly soul? What what could we perceive? And it struck me because my stance on this whole project that I'm working on is in horror and in discussions of beauty, both are maligned with this attitude that they are lesser and that they don't have a lot to add. So beauty either doesn't have a lot to add an academic discourse because it takes away from other things. I mentioned this in previous episodes, you know, the other topics of discussion and critical theory, it, it clouds the air basically. And horror even in discussions of beauty, I've had a lot of theorists just flippantly say, I had one of them even write down that it would be foolish to try to find a uh, complex beauty within horror. I'm like, well, then color me a fool because I see it very clearly within horror and not just, not just normal aesthetics here. Not we're talking like, oh, this red light is very pretty. I'm really talking like what it has to say. And so when I read this description from Plotinus, I felt that this horrid, ugly soul that he described was just a human being. Any modern person with their feelings and their desires and, and anybody who goes with their drive to sate these instinctual urges freely and openly being themselves, I love to challenge these sorts of thoughts of him saying it's ugly and horrid because in our discussion already about Barry, we've already shown that if you were to watch the film once, you're going to see a very one-dimensional, creepy, breathing nasty erotic character but if you watch it multiple times you do see this human side to him and this complexity and you see how much of his destiny was even taken away from him stripped away by somebody even worse than him so for me that's where the beauty of the ugliness of humanity lies is that our imperfections make us incredibly complex and beautiful creatures sometimes we take missteps and go in the wrong direction. Sometimes there is evil and there is true ugliness in the world. I, yeah, I just want to say that I love the opening of this movie uh, because I love 
dystopian propaganda as an aesthetic. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's the perfect. It's, it's very good. It's the perfect paradox of you should feel fine. And as a viewer, you're like, I'm going to go with not fine. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the, I'm getting the idea that I should not feel fine. And you're trying to make, you're trying to calm me down. That's another thing about horror that I forgot to say, where I feel a kinship with the audience that I'm watching with, because we're all agreeing this is fucked up, what we're watching. Right. When I was a kid, I had one of my most powerful nightmares was, I'm in danger, but nobody thinks I am. And I can't communicate that I'm in danger. You know, a very Nightmare on Elm Street, very, you know, mm-hmm. kid, kid horror, teen horror. Um, you know, but, but it's universally applicable. And I feel calmed when I watch horror movies that go, yeah, you're in danger. This character's in danger. You can see it. And you're going to watch them survive this or not. That's part of the excitement. <laughs> uh, but but like the, I, I feel such powerful kinship with the horror community because we all go, yeah, something is wrong. There is danger. We're all going to share in the sensation of feeling afraid, but being safe. Yes. I think that horror works like a sort of emotional and sensational survival guide. So not necessarily the practical skills. I know for some people it has. I've seen people say that uh, they love slashers for, you know, the fact that they have been able to learn through the folly of the characters that are involved. But if you look at horror just in the wide scope of the types of genres and stories that you can get, as you were saying, the very first response we have as sentient creatures, not even as human beings, just as being alive, is sensation. We have an experience, and then we respond to this experience. We, however, don't come with some sort of preloaded knowledge of the universe and history whenever we're born. We have the evolutionary stuff, of course. We know naturally how to swim and things like this if, if you are you know, put into that situation at a young enough age. But we don't have the same social understanding or historical context. So we have to relearn these things. Every generation has to learn these things. And I think horror is amazing to teach this through the different types of showing that danger. You know, the ways that we see people struggle and fail, we don't have to fail then. We can see where the failures are. And let's be honest, most of the time it's communication where the failure lies in most horror films. This is a massive exception to that, but that's because this film takes place in a more metaphysical horror sense. And in fact, in a way, I would say this is a more frightening film than most of your monster movies or slashers or anything that's like a direct, for for instance, the ending of the film is probably the least frightening moment for me. The last maybe 20 minutes or so, because for one, it's more of an adventure, like a kid adventure of Elena escaping the compound. And, you know, we're getting our ET moment there basically. And then it turns into a slasher with Barry going on, you know, a killing spree. But before all that, Barry scares me to the fullest extent because he is an ethereal, cosmic entity basically he is human existence that is distorted and that freaks me out way more and i i I love that this movie operates on multiple levels where he he represents evil in the universe but he is also just a dangerous man he's a dangerous man who and we we haven't brought it up he has sexual designs on elena 
and yes. and he's, he's he's a man in power taking advantage of his power for a helpless teenager. If you do the math, she's mm-hmm. between 16 or 18 and it's it's unambiguous that he sees her that way and mm-hmm. that's that's terrifying in reality. That version of him is grounded in everyone's experience of real reality, but on top of it she's got superpowers and he might be a demon. So um <laughs> and it works. It's 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 very parable like that. Uh, while mm-hmm. still being like the danger is real, and and he goes from a doctor who's like I'm a mad genius to actually I'm a lunatic. I can't <laughs> like you can't trust what I'm going to do. He changes from like moment to moment in certain scenes where he's like scary and on top of it, but then he'll be like like when Rosemary catches him doing his transformation. Yeah, he he's acting like a kid who wet the bed, and then he lashes out, and it, and it he goes from vulnerable and saying i'm not okay to i'm gonna murder you um and that's and well, yeah wait 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 to i am part of the divine and i'm going to murder you like his ego just thrusts forward right before he kills her it's it's quite intense how quickly he snaps back to i am a perfect being yeah and what i love is that the sci-fi element of the movie is declared early on elena's powers are yeah. real she's got mm-hmm. esp she can blow up brains. That's the sci-fi reality we live in. And then as we learn of Barry's backstory, he goes on this trip. And what's funny is we see a drop go on his lip. And, you know, LSD is never said in the movie. But because we know history, we're like, that's acid. Mm-hmm. That's part of our participation in the movie of like, you know, every every synopsis calls it a drug trip or an acid trip. And it's like, the movie doesn't say that. You're saying that because, you know, it's referring mm-hmm. to that. And he has this incredibly abstract experience within the pit and he comes out a lunatic and he and years later claims to have been confronted by something that was like a black rainbow. Uh, the God he's in the, in the subtitles, it's the eye of the God, which is more mysterious than mm. just saying the eye of God. Right. And what I like is that the, the, the veracity of that experience is questionable. When I first watched the movie, I was like, he's just a madman. But then I watched it like a second and third time and I was like, is the black rainbow real? Superpowers are real. Yeah, it could be. I, I like that the movie withholds that. The viewer finds him scary on any level that they think is the scariest. Mm-hmm. At the bare minimum, he's a dangerous man wielding a knife who who has sexual drawings in a cabinet. And uh, <laughs> and and then beyond that, he claims to have seen God who gave him and God gave him permission to kill people. And because we live in a world, because this world is movie is mutants and superpowers, he might be right. And and the fact that the movie like doesn't show you too much, you don't you don't see the black rainbow at work in a way that mm-hmm. like he could he could be nuts or he could be right. And the fact that they don't clarify is spookier. Yeah, and there are also little hints to it being a kind of cosmic event that's taking place too. I mean, the fact that Elena when she leaves and looks out into the sky, one of the first things she sees in the stars is a nebula and all these different cosmic structures. And it it could be seen as a metaphorical thing. It could be the fact that she has such heightened senses. She can see things for how they really are. But the fact of the matter is there's still this connection between the universe existence and whatever situation is taking place in this reality, whether it is based on drugs or based on an actual spiritual enlightenment or events that Barry's going through. I was reading up on some quotes 
for this episode that I, every episode I always like to look through the filmmakers quotes just to see if they have something that I find like, this is it, this is better than philosophy. I want to bring this in. And I struggled a little bit with about beauty specifically, but I did read some stuff that Cosmatos was saying that his films and specifically this one, or actually both of them, that both of the films that he's made, this and Mandy are about what, you know, when you have men that are in positions of power that they've created for themselves, when they are questioned or shown the reality of the situation that that in reality they don't actually have that much sway or power the downward spiral that they go through and how they become monsters and lash out because they are emotionally in like incapable or ill-equipped to accept their own mortality and their own averageness basically so it's about that kind of fragile ego the i i'm really happy that you brought that up because i i do think these i do think he makes movies about the villains are small men and uh, who who feel big and part of barry's transformation which is like that's yeah jeremiah sand in mandy and barry are are, Mm -hmm. are related um and they both yeah i i mean as characters and they their origin stories are very similar where they both saw god and who gave them permission to be evil. <laughs> and and then like they they feel entitled to the bodies of women. That's like that's also mm-hmm. a common thing and that you don't think they're cool. The, the they think they're cool and they're so ridiculous uh and small. I I as a man I enjoyed watching that. I enjoyed that that these movies feel like takedowns of toxic patriarchy. I enjoyed seeing Barry go from like yeah i'm god too i broke my neck because i tripped (laughs) Um, i was mad at first because okay i'll explain first why i was a little upset with it and then i'll explain why i love it so much uh well so the reason i was at first a little upset was just that i think elena is kind of an afterthought in this film that for such a powerful creature of a, a i say creature in a not not to be diminutive to 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 a woman she's a mutant she's a she's like an x well i also just mean like how like humans are also creatures, like a creature yeah. of existence of the universe, you know, f- to be so powerful and yeah, to, to put it in those terms, like to be like this powerful mutant who isn't really explored in the lengths to which what she can do. She's kind of a Jean Grey figure there. It's like, what can you actually accomplish if you were to just unleash your, your full power? I was a little like, you know, this guy has been in your way your whole life. And you didn't even get to do anything. You were just standing there scared. And then this dumbass just trips on a piece of stick and then breaks his neck on a, on a, on a rock. At first I was like, no, that is not satisfying at all. But then I thought about it more. I'm like, this is so satisfying because he thought he was so overly powerful and godlike and he couldn't even walk. Like it was gravity that ended up killing him, a force that was stronger than him that he didn't respect. And his last his last words are demanding she come to him, and because she refuses, yes. because she refuses, uh, he, you can you can see him cracking, which is the mm-hmm. same moment, which is the same moment in Mandy. Mandy is a, a very similar character where she doesn't have a lot of power because the man in power is asserting his power. The villain is asserting mm-hmm. himself, and she uses her agency to refuse. And that's that's a capital crime. <laughs> the thing about Elena is I, she's like a mythological figure of innocence. She was born mm-hmm. here. She has no, she's had no chance to form her personality. True. That's her struggle is I need to get out of here because I can't learn who I am uh, in in this simulated reality. I have to I have to escape to myself. 
and we don't get to see yeah. we don't get to see who she becomes and she's not she doesn't take pleasure in his de- <laughs> never mind she she giggles at his death but she, she doesn't does smile, yeah. <laughs> but she but she doesn't like take revenge that's the other thing is you no. know you know in mandy red takes revenge which is a a, a brutal mm-hmm. act and and that movie is about how revenge itself is kind of evil and you you have to become mm. a little evil in order to take revenge because it's brutal and it's violent um and he does it on behalf of the figure of innocence the the good the you know the good person and elena i when i first watched it i thought she was using her power to stop him and I think it's pretty explicit. Yeah. I think I think it's explicit. His foot is stuck, but I, I I think I mean she would. That's the I mean she's afraid of him, but she she could use her power to do anything. And you know she you see she makes the choice of no. I I am refusing the command you've given me. You've been commanding me all my existence. You've been commanding my body with mm-hmm. your with your evil crystal. Um, and now that I'm free, all I can do is say no. An important note is it's not just her body. It's her body and her mind, her spirit, everything that he's tried to control. So that is actually quite beautiful in itself that in this moment she decides to not use her powers because he's fetishized her power his whole, well, at least her her whole Her entire life. life. She was born in a cult. Yeah. But I also mean like the, this this kind of erotic drive that he has. You see how he he's almost orgasmic for him when she tries to use his, her powers against him because he's just like he feels like he's touching something divine and enlightening and and something that is just like spiritually only he would understand because only he has the wisdom to do that. So ha ha ha, little girl, you don't know what you're even trying to do, and I can can control that. So I did love that. She let him be the his literal downfall <laughs> there at the end of the film. It's his own hubris that that causes it. Yeah, no, and that's the thing is, uh, it's it's he is an abuser, and that's the thing. These villains are abusers mm-hmm. who takes pleasure in her attempts to fight back, and yeah. that yeah, just just portraying that. Uh, but it's truly like when his ego is truly wounded. Also, he's on her turf. She spent her entire life in within Arborea, and he's controlled that reality. And now that she's in nature he's out of his element. Um, and you could say yes. that he's not used to walking around branches and trees and he's wearing his little boots. <laughs> his cute little boots. Yeah. And, and, um, and I have, I, yeah, yeah. I have a question that I want to ask you. Okay. You remember the scene when he's driving after her and he turns and he sees a vision of his old self sitting in the yes. passenger seat. What does the vision say? He says, you're doing good. Yeah. I've, I have I caught myself correcting him. Like, you're doing well. You're a scientist. You should know better. But then I thought of it. I'm like, no, you're putting a moral imperative on what you're saying here. You're yeah. doing good. I, I think that's the black rainbow or, you know, the, the, the essence of the black rainbow. His God, basically. Take, take, which, which is because his, he's driven by ego. It's him. It's mm-hmm. himself that's appearing. But <laughs> when I first watched this, I thought I heard him say, you look so good. <laughs> My DVD doesn't have subtitles. I could do that. I, I, I had to watch a different version that had subtitles in order to confirm, like, okay, I'm not wrong. Yeah. And then, uh, when I told another friend about it, we talked about that moment, and my friend said, yeah, he said, you look so good. So we, <laughs> we both misheard it. And this is an example of, like, people experiencing the movie differently and coming to different conclusions that still fit 
and the, you know, they, the correction takes the analysis into a different direction, but he's, he's so ego driven that you look so good is kind of the same thing mm-hmm. as you're doing so good, especially cause he's yep. finally taken his wig off and he's finally put his spooky clothes on his custom leather <laughs> and, and, and he's holding his dagger, which is another, you know, great mystery of the movie. Also, you might have recognized that they recreate that moment at the end of Mandy. Ooh, it's been a while since I've seen Mandy, but now I'm going to look out for it when I watch it. When Red has completed his crusade, as he's driving away, he turns and Mandy's sitting next to him. Oh, yeah. And, okay. she's, and, yeah. and, and she doesn't say anything, but she looks at him and it, and it turns and the reverse shot is him smiling and then he turns back. Shot for shot, right. it's, they're the same scene. In Black Rainbow, oh, and, it, and 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 yeah, no, and and uh, Manny doesn't say anything, and I remember thinking, did they cut her saying the same thing Barry said? Because she communicate <laughs> she communicates the exact same sentiment, but it's romantic for Barry, it's evil, and in Mandy, it's romantic. I think it's incredible right. that the, the, you're seeing their dark passenger who's driving them. Yeah, which says a lot about idealization as well. If you compare the two films, that the whole drive for Red is a sort of idealization of Mandy. You know, he. he he sees her as something pure and something that is perfect and, and gentle and, and good, but she's a person. You know? She's complex and has her own agency and, and, and wrongdoings like any other person. And she's not perfect. That That's the whole, that's the beauty and perfection of humans is we're not perfect. So this touches upon something I love about Cosmatos' films is a lot of filmmakers, especially you know male filmmakers would get criticism for having characters that are, female but passive and i was a bit critical of that at first as well but then i realized like ah but you know what normally it's because the film tries to make it about the women as if like this is our hero this is who you should be focused on and then you get a kind of cookie cutter cardboard no character because a man wrote it and doesn't even understand how to write a woman in this case it's like but this isn't what these films are about these films are more about dissecting the ugly sides of masculinity yeah and and, and mandy you have it on two notes so like if if beyond the black rainbow is a start of this conversation by showing it purely through your villains the two different types of toxicity you can see in masculinity mandy shows it again with the cultists but then with Red himself, you also see this kind of chivalrous masculinity that is both positive and negative at the same time because of how he idolizes and has this strong, perfect view of his partner when it's still like, but are you still seeing her for her? You know, are you seeing your image of her? Or are you seeing her for her? And he's in a he's a heavy metal demigod. So you're going to get <laughs> you're going to get like a, t- a, a t- who's who's committing acts of violence. And that's the that's mm-hmm. what I love about Mandy is that it's like I'm off the edge now. the The love of my life is gone. I have been consumed by darkness, and I'm not leaving this world until I've rem- until I've cleansed the evil from this world, which requires me to descend into hell. Yes. And become one of them. Yeah, yeah. And the reverse of like, I've got fan theories about the connections between the cult and Arborea, <laughs> but the Black Rainbow is about a man becoming a monster and leaving this lair. And Mandy is mm-hmm. about a man who becomes a monster and then enters the lair yeah. of the devil. In Mandy, this is here's my fan theory. Uh, when they stab Red before the burning, Brother Swan says, This is the tainted blade of the pale knight straight from the abyssal lair. I think he's talking about the devil's teardrop. Could be. And that like, the fa- when I first watched it, I was like, that's just nonsense. Crazy person talk for a, for a villain. 
but after watching mm. both movies again, I was like, oh shit, there are connections that don't really matter, but I'm finding them. <laughs> and that's it, it's me as like, I'm be, I've become a crazy, crazy cultist for these movies. But we're getting sidetracked. We have to talk about Black Rainbow. <laughs> but I, I, I like that Barry is like, it's a, it's a male filmmaker making a movie about an evil man. And and digging exactly. into him and and like uh, as a male viewer, I I appreciate that because this genre is full of men attacking women, and mm-hmm. so many so many books have been written analyzing that aspect of it, and I feel like um, we're you know we're now approaching a moment in history where we are turning our limbs back and and making movies that approach these dynamics, especially because the thing that the the element that ties these this genre together is violence. This movie is going to have violence mm. in it. Even spooky hauntings, you know, have, have these moments of violence. It's just how, what kind of intensity, how much gore. But someone gets hurt in horror, and we feel horrified for yes. them. And I like that the violence in these Cosmatos movies are men against, or, or they want to hurt women. And, and that's what is horrifying about them. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I, I like seeing that and being like, yeah, let's let's point out how that's a bad thing. Yes. And I love that the, from the very get-go, by setting it here and showing the footage from Reagan and stuff, you're also showing a kind of origin for, not like a pure origin, but a modern-day origin for like the resurgence of this being a norm. Came a lot from Reaganomics and the trickle-down idea for the elite. When the elite were all just privileged white men, of course, then you're only going to live in their viewpoint. And the film itself mirrors this really well and shows us really well because you have characters like Margot and Rosemary that, okay, so we have other women who do nothing to help this small girl. And in Margot's case, we don't know much about her, but we see her just kind of doing her job. But she's so shitty to Elena and she's only really shitty to Elena when she's been treated like crap by uh, Barry. And it shows how these power plays, the trickle down effect, if you will, it just the toxicity just sprays on other people, and regardless of gender identity, uh, ethnic background, uh, social dynamic, we all become lesser when we engage in this world because we are either put down by the power system, or we are on top and trying to stay there. Look at Rosemary. I, I, a question for you: What's your interpretation of her? Is that his mother, sister? Yeah. What is the relationship here? Exactly. That's another example of like whatever conclusion you come to. I have to be like they never say it. The only thing, the only they thing don't. you know, the only thing you know is they have the same last name in the credits. Yes. Um, and you never see their bed. You never see a bedroom. She sleeps on a couch. Yeah, she sleeps all day on the couch, and, and she's a little older. You don't know Barry's age because the in the flashback he's all washed out, um, and he's and his True. makeup his makeup looks bad. And that's the thing is you. I'm so happy that you brought that up because um, <laughs> Rosemary's just some family member, and yeah, and like however you want to read it is how you're going to read it. I I think mm-hmm. I think because Rosemary is uh, Timothy Leary's third wife, she's Barry's wife. But I like placing her as just this woman who cares about him, who is related to him in yeah. some way. And I, I think everyone in the movie used to be like on equal footing in the formation of the commune. Um, because, I mean, it was a, yes. a, a 60s hippie cult, commune turned cult, where everyone was told they were equal. But then, you know, of course, males, ma- men egos get be put at the forefront. Um, and I think that she was 
at some point because she also on on the table is a book full, is a, a book by Arborea that's full of notes. So it's like I think she was probably one of the healers that is mentioned as as you know one of the founders. Mm. But just just like Mercurio being just drugged up in a basement, she is just getting high on the couch saying she's meditating because you also see some stuff on the table and what <laughs> what looks like it could be hashish or uh, or like mm, weed or some ashes of some kind yeah no and i i think that she's because the whole point you know the, the lesson of the movie is everyone's on drugs and that's bad <laughs> uh, but i i think that she's checked out and the the big traumatic incident that happened long time ago was the founder's wife was killed you know and it's her yeah. it's and it's barry who did it so She's probably like has no way to process it because she can't leave and she's and uh, it's been years and no one's getting any better. So she's just going to check out and she cares about Barry, but can't care enough uh, because he's truly evil. Um, And it's this sad. It's a very her her death is a sad, sweet moment where she says, I should have been there for you. She finally recognizes that like. And the, the what's weird about it is it's like he's the monster, you know. Um, mm-hmm. but, but she recognizes that he's hurt by this violence. That the vi- the system of violence is hurting everyone. Yes. And you mentioned Margot being like an underling, but because she's over someone else, she takes advantage of her power, which is mm-hmm. Kafka esque. A big thing in Kafka is like you never see who's in charge. You see, violence is in charge. Yeah. One of the influences he stated for the writing of the movie was William Burroughs. Uh, the beat poet. Okay. The pills he takes are from Benway's pharmacy. Uh, Benway is a villainous psychotic doctor in Naked Lunch. Oh crap! Okay. Yep. And uh, <laughs> that's a great reference. <laughs> and, and yeah, I, I love it. Uh, he has a lot. He wrote an essay on the on the, on control, and he talked about how it's not just violence. It's we you, those in power use language to control. And I think about that makes me think about Doctor Mercurio. Uh, saying like mm-hmm. he, he says uh, sensory therapy and energy sculpting which is a nonsense term and and you the yeah. patient you the patient are like okay i'll trust you. you're saying a bunch of words i don't understand but you're you're a doctor so i'll trust you and that's the first mistake but uh he he talked about he he said there's a big quote of his that's like there's no practical end result for control control is only used as a means for more control like junk exactly and he taught he wrote a lot about addiction being an ecosystem that the junkie become the junkie sees their body as a vessel for the drug the drug has was way more mm. important than their own body um they objectify themselves within the act and um and, that, and i think mercurio being a junkie in the basement is absolutely also a reference to that and that could, the, the society is addicted to control for no reason and barry's at the top and he hates it You've just made me build a little bit of a theory here about the film based on this reading of addiction and power systems, because on one hand, Barry uh, on paper is in control and physically he's in control. But as you were saying with, was it a quote from Burroughs about uh, language being a way that. Uh, yeah. Yes. He, he control. Okay, he, that was in his, his, his article. He wrote an essay about language being a virus. <laughs> um, okay. But yeah, it says that you see in the film in many ways. You see it in how Barry mumbles. So he just kind of expects people to understand him. You see it in, as I've already mentioned, how Dr. Arborea will not be referred to as Mercurio. He will not allow him. He just shows the power play by being like, I'm asleep until you use the right language. 
There's also something we haven't touched upon, which are the videos that they show to whoever is in captivity. So this is something like Dr. Arborio isn't even aware of the fact that he's in captivity, even though they're showing him the same indoctrination videos that they're showing Elena to kind of coax you and relax you and kind of treating you like you're in some sort of resort in Florida, like look at all the palm trees and a documentary about the ocean and these fun, like uh, the getaway and the beach. What I find very interesting though is Aboria just sits back and watches it because like he says, ah, it reminds me of a simpler time. So he's actually succumbing to his own, (laughs) his own systematic control. Whereas Elena, here's where the theory comes into play. I think that this film shows Elena as a figure of purity in that, as you were saying at the beginning of our talk here, the people who are evil in regards to drugs are the pushers, the ones who tell you, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do it my way, it's going to open your mind, everything. The Whereas, as we were saying, if you want to experiment safely, do what you want to do with your body, Elena refuses. And she refuses in every single way she possibly can. She either sleeps whenever people are trying to communicate with her, she tries to attack them if she can, or, and this is one of the most wonderful blink and you miss kind of moments, even though there's nothing that you can blink and miss in this movie. It's all a little slowed down so you can experience it. They have the TV set to just like documentaries all day and brochures and stuff. And at night they turn it off. And I love that she touches the screen and uses her powers to start watching cartoons and other television programs, which confirms to her that there is a world outside of the existence that she's in because she can control what she, what media that she watches instead of the media that's given to her. So she's already outsmarted them on the language of communication, a language or on the level of communication and language. And that I think is what makes her so capable and able to get out of her situation is the fact that she's just not having it. And yeah, she, she knows better that you've hit so many nails. That's, it's a very beautiful response because she, just because she doesn't say much in the movie doesn't mean there's not a lot of substance to her. And I praise the actress for she it's, it's hard to do something slowly and effectively um, yes, it is. <laughs> and, and I, and when it comes to dystopia, they, they, all they need you to do is buy it. And like you said, from the get go, it's, I don't buy it. I, I don't think that yeah. I need to be here and I'm going to do everything I can to get out of here. And there's no saving the people there. That's another sort of implicit, like she doesn't try to see her father. She doesn't try to stop Barry from killing anyone else. She just, I just have to get away. You just have to get away because they're insane. There's no, there's no mm-hmm. trying to reason with. This is evil on the level of un, impossible to reason with because they're so certain because they're insane or addicted to control or on drugs, and that's <laughs> and and then that's that's brought about in Mandy as well. There's no talking to them. They're everything they say no. is 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 gibberish that maybe you can understand a little bit um, and and see as you know it's mythological drug induced nonsense. But like and that's scary. We don't speak the same language, you know. We're we're this mm-hmm. we're this, we're, we're both human beings, but you're coming in here talking about horns of Abraxas. Um, th- I'm I'm really happy that you brought up that she uses the TV as a way to like remind herself there is an escape, and that when she gets out, there's a glowing TV through the window, and that's an image that yeah. lots of people, lots of image. Matt painting, by the way, uh, for that for that final 
the suburbia as a map. Yeah. God, I love it. You can um, see it's beautiful. I love they brought that in there. And lots Great of people, lots of people bring up like the sinister eeriness of the fact that there's a TV in a window that, you know, Arborea has TVs and that, and, and Reagan's coming through on them. Oh. So, you know, so like, ha, you know, and, and the whole the whole premise of dystopia is especially many of the greatest works were written as a way to say, hey, we live in one. And uh, <laughs> that like, you know, is there is there an escape slash have you really escaped if <laughs> what you've walked into is 1980s suburbia? But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that Elena it ha- has a character to her, but because she was born in a cult, she she the the journey is to discover herself. So I, and, which is you know a bear, the a bear a mythological foundation for a character that we can um, empathize with. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the the crystal dampening her powers is such a great like she she needs she can't she can't be herself here the the act the wall mm-hmm. the air the air itself is hostile to me. Yeah, it's an an environment. That is literally made to be the antithesis of her comfort zone and ability to live. A basically. prison it's a pr- designed to, it's poisonous. Yeah. A poison, a, a prison just for you is Kafka. Yeah. And she also, she, she makes me think of in real life. So one of the most inspiring examples of human endeavor is the fact that children born in cults will be like, fuck this. I got to leave, you know, Yeah, which is a sort of like, a good little nature versus nurture argument for, you know, you think you can just raise someone to be a, a, a robot. Um, if, if you control every, if you control their entire environment, but if they recognize I'm not supposed to be hurt by somebody who says they love me and they call you know, they don't buy it and they want to leave. And yeah, there are, there are historical examples of children who were born in cults raised on the nonsense and went, this is nonsense. I don't even have any, I don't have anything to compare this to. And I know it's nonsense. Um, because well, actually the- I wanted to chime in on that because yeah. you were saying something earlier about what makes this so scary with the, the two main figures we have, uh, at least uh, okay, three, if you count, uh, Boria in this film, but between Mandy and, and black rainbow is that we don't speak their language. So if you have the whole, I don't speak your language, that makes you even scarier to me because I don't even know what you're trying to get at and you're unpredictable. But I think the key factor is, as you said, the horns of Abraxas that really clicked with me because they're up against metalheads in Mandy. So they're really used to language like that. And in this film, she grew up in this world. This is all she's ever heard was this mumbo jumbo about us forging a new age and all this crap. And so I think that, they actually have the tools to speak the language and the language is power. They can sniff it through because they know what power sounds like. They know it when they hear it. And after a certain amount of time, you just go, but I'm tired of doing it your way. That's what Barry does. That's why he takes over and usurps everything. He was tired of doing it somebody else's way. And I think Elena, instead of having that masculine approach to it of just, you know, storming the castle and taking it over, she's like, I just want to, I don't know, be a hermit somewhere. And, live in the woods and I want to meet a squirrel and make a little friend. You know, I don't know. I just want to, I want to live in the cartoon if I could. So she just wants to go away. And there's power in that. She, she's, she's holding her power. She doesn't want to use her power on anyone else. Um, And I think in Mandy, in Mandy, you're introduced to them as a, as a a couple who's so in love. She is choosing to be with someone she loves. And that is also using her power. Um, And the great violence of the movie is tearing these two lovers away. 
I, I yeah, no, I, I like that too. Um, damn, I'm trying to remember uh, something I was going to say earlier. Oh, when you said language, yeah. When Mandy's being menaced, um, Jeremiah says, look at me, what do you see? And she says, I see the Reaper fast approaching, which is a heavy metal thing to say. Uh, yeah, it and, is. And he's, and he's a hippie. <laughs> and there's another, so there's a, a, a thing I really wanted to bring up, and I'm really happy I remembered it. Um, he says, well, I recognized you, and I think in time you'll recognize me, which is hippy-dippy, um, <laughs> like cosmic stuff. But the, the idea of recognizing something without prior knowledge of it, which is like a, a sort of magical concept, but also sort of hypnotic. We're, we're messing with your, your memories and time. Um, Cosmatis said that his inspiration for this movie, Black Rainbow, was being a kid at a video store and seeing horror movie covers he wasn't allowed to yeah. watch and coming yeah. up with his own title, <laughs> coming up with his own stories. Um, and he said, this movie is one of those movies. And he, he jokingly, and I think this is true, though, said he came up with a poster before he came up with the plot. Uh, and, and the poster is evocative. This woman running, this triangle behind her, and a weird-looking dude with a weird-looking knife threatening her. And this aspect made me realize our experience of a movie begins the second we learn of its existence. Otherwise, yes. otherwise spoilers would have no power. But seeing this poster is your first sort of, oh, what is this? What's the story? What, what, what's everyone's deal? And the movie delivers by showing you this, you know, these characters and you don't, know, you don't see the weird looking dude until halfway through when they reveal that's Barry. And, yeah. he's, and he opens his dagger and he says the devil's teardrop and you recognize it because you've seen it in the poster. You've seen um, the poster, yeah. Uh, uh, it's it's you, a payoff without any context. It's it's a it's a recognition without the prior knowledge, which is magical. Um, and and seeing something and knowing you're seeing the divine, you know, knowing your or or darkness or evil. And when I I mm-hmm. the introduction of Barry when he's walking down the hallway bathed in red light, and we the audience go evil. That's us recognizing him. We have no prior knowledge of this character, but the movie's aesthetics have communicated evil, and we and we recognize that language which also is mirrored in Mandy when she sees the van. Uh, she's walking down and yeah. everything's red and the music is scary. And she looks up and she sees a van um, and Mandy goes evil. She recognizes them without knowing anything about them, uh, which is like kind of like ESP, you know, it's, it's this, it's, mm-hmm. and, and that's why I think this movie is so perfect when talking about the aesthetics uh, of horror and of beauty, where, um, you are speaking the you're speaking the, your your brain is speaking the same language that the movie is speaking in subliminal ways in ways that you may or may not be conscious of but of course you know you're picking up signals which is like the the phone call <laughs> if we can there's so much to talk about oh that freaking phone call yeah, yeah. That, that's another that's another great so mis- cool. it's another great mystery that i'm still i've watched the movie four times and i have like kind of an idea of what might it might be but there's so little information mm-hmm. to go off of so it's like yeah, I can think of it like an allegorical sense or a metaphorical sense. I mean, we have the fact that Barry's already, as you, you, I like how you said it, he's under the foot of Dr. Aboria. But it also shows in this fo- moment with the phone call. So again, if you haven't you know, seen the film yet, he gets a strange phone call where it's just like garbled, almost like old like dial-up modem kind of sounds coming in through it. And it's just clearly whatever it is, is some sort of like digital existence talking to him. He understands it perfectly. He responds to it. But then after the phone call, he's very upset and he notices he just checks real quick. And because he, he tries to call, he tries to call Rosemary afterwards, 
but the dial tone doesn't turn on. He looks and the phone was never even plugged in. So you have this really bizarre, like what's happening? How did this happen? And we don't know if it's like a drug trip that he's experiencing. I think it's him at least not on a literal level, like I said, a metaphorical level. It's yet again, showing a moment where he's not actually in control and he's always underneath somebody else who is dictating to him what is and isn't proper. As you said, it comes back again in the car when he sees this superior who is himself that's giving him the okay of like, this is good. What you're doing is good. You can continue. And it allows him to continue because he doesn't have the, the bravery to take responsibility for his actions. And, and even that, and that, that image is himself. So it's like, finally I'm in control, but you're, you're giving in, yes. you're, you're, he thinks he is and he's smiling. Cause he's like, I'm in control, but he's giving into these sordid desires um, mm-hmm. that like your quote, I really loved your quote, by the way, that like an ugly soul that 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 is that is giving in to so many urges um, and and thinking that that's the right path, but it only leads to more suffering. So they're actually confused um, and and but but doubling down, which is kind of like how you said about like male figures being told you're not in control, and then them being like I'm going to double down uh, and staying <laughs> and staying in control. And that like even he thought he thinks he's escaped the system as well, but he's still subservient. Uh, and yes. that, and that like true freedom, at least Elena's, Elena is the one who gets the closest to true freedom. Uh, but it's so, her, her journey is so abstract, but it, it's, it's like giving up, you know, it's, it's allowing the, be- the beauty to stand before you and not say, not feel like you need to grab it. You just, just, just looking up and seeing a galaxy and going, wow. Yeah. Um, she's pure in that sense. Uh, I have mentioned cons a few times. I'm going to bring up cons again in the, the disinterestedness that, that mode of thought that we need to have to experience beauty is Elena's not going outside to go look at the stars, to find a constellation, to see what the outside world is like. Elena's escaping from something. And then the first thing she sees is the expanse of the universe right before her. And she just experiences it and she just goes, whoa, and then imagines or or possibly even sees what galaxies are. That is a wonderful visualization of what that like attitude is, that aesthetic attitude of just I am watching this for what it is and I am experiencing it on its own terms and I'm letting this beauty just wash over me because I'm allowing it to be there because I'm not looking for it. If we look for it, it's a lot harder to find. I feel that a lot of critics get caught up in looking for what they think is beauty, but really they're looking for goodness, structure, form, appropriateness, things like that of this nature, things that have criteria that are so rigid and strong that is it sufficient, you know? And so it actually causes you to be cynical and to nitpick and not actually see any good in anything. You just look at all the negatives and then say, and everything else is fine. But when we're looking for beauty, the best thing to do is to not look, well, not to look for, you know, it's just to experience. Not not to define. I love that you brought that up. Not not to define, which, which like, yeah, when we, when we break down that word, uh, it's, it's to split infinity into finity. You're, you're you're taking, <laughs> with, yeah, and and it was it was Guillermo del Toro who said he doesn't like to call things beautiful because that by definition means something else is ugly. Um, yes. And I was waiting for you to bring that up in the first episode, and I was like, oh, I'll bring it up on that. <sighs> I, 
Uh, I did not find that quote. I wish um, I had that quote. I would have yeah, done so. I think about it all the time because it's like, yeah, he, he shows things that are ugly or beautiful and it's all up to us to make our definitions. But the real mm-hmm. point is there there is there should be no definitions. It should just be existing. And that Barry is the the deepest down level pit of uh of of evil and horror and wrongness because he's done everything he can to define beauty to capture it to 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 pervert her purity i i just love that in this movie he he calls things beautiful so many times but they're always in a perverse way it's always him Mm -hmm. saying that her mother was beautiful that he says you're so beautiful when you sleep weird and and yeah no and also and also i love that his security footage of her she's like very small in the corner of the room mm-hmm. and that of course it's obviously the only security camera they have on her so he's like she's this little yep. blob in the on the corner of the screen but he's obsessed with her like a fly that is just always in his room and he's always staring at it and arborea he he says isn't it beautiful about the nature videos which again there's that simulation of nature we're separated from it and being shown this mm-hmm. this fallen version of it but we're if we're satisfied with it and we say that's beautiful um we've we've cut ourselves off from the infinity the undefinedness of it all um and then moments after he gets a shot of what could be heroin or morphine and he says oh isn't it beautiful and it's like that's mm-hmm. th- there Literally. there's there's that perversion You've actually ruined beauty by announcing it. And, and yeah, and then Barry says it was so beautiful, like a black rainbow, uh, which is a wonderful oxymoron of like, we can't know what that looks like. It's it's an experience. He's describing an experience that he is calling beautiful, but he's evil. I actually think that some of this comes from the philosophy of Plotinus, because when I was reading this, he doesn't explicitly mention a black rainbow, but he does talk about color. And in that, when he's talking, like a lot of theorists, especially way back then, they were looking at form more as a sign of beauty than other things like colors and then the the lesser important things of art in their eyes. But he did say that the the perspective of an ugly soul would be that color would all be shades of gray. You know, it would just be black and white. You wouldn't be able to see or experience color because colors would have no meaning because you were not you're evil, you're ugly, you don't have beauty, you don't experience beauty. So if there was beauty in color, it's stripped away, which was also a way for him to try to, you know, take away the fact that color could even be a factor in beauty because it's so easily uh, destroyed in his eyes. Yeah, she's trying not to do homework. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, for the sake of time, we could go on for hours and hours and hours, but uh, I do like to keep a, a, a little tight. So I have one closing question for you, which is a difficult question, and we'll, we'll, I want you to try to unpack it. So we've gone in, let's look at that quote that I have, and look, I loved how you gave your uh, most recent description of Barry and not only his search for beauty, um, but his void, basically, of self and of existence to a degree would you say yes or no with all of this in mind about barry is he still a beautiful character oh that's (laughs) i i wasn't ready to answer that (laughs) um if i were to be hippy dippy i would say (laughs) we're all children of god we're all we're we're all have a chance to be beautiful um the image of the movie that I find most frightening, which maybe here's your answer of the most beautiful, is the moment after he comes out of the pit 
he's drenched mm-hmm. in black tar. He he kills Anna. Yeah. He stands there and he looks like a Rodan sculpture. Um, and I and I was looking at it and I was like, that's fucking evil. But he's yeah. so he's so expressively sad. Yeah, he is. And I think Barry's a beautiful. I think yes, he's a beautiful character because in the way that Aristotle would say tragedy is a beautiful genre and mode of human emotion. And I think that the journey Barry takes us on is a beautiful one. So, so to answer your question, mm-hmm. yes. But I also think that evil needs to be eradicated. Oh, no, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to glorify evil. And he makes himself an avatar <laughs> of evil. Um, I, I, think he's, I think he's a monumentally tragic figure, mm-hmm. which are the best monsters. Not because I feel sorry for him, but because I understand why he's doing it. Um, and he is doing it because he's hurt. Uh, and and I, I'll say, yeah, the movie shows all of these nooks and crannies of him and that his cornerstone is he's fucked up. And it's really sad to be fucked up. <laughs> so, so to answer your question, yes. Excellent. I really like that answer. Thank you for taking the, the moment to just really unpack that. I've, there's, I don't feel there was a necessarily a right or wrong answer. I just I wanted to challenge that. And I agree with you. And I also think that this episode and this discussion, I, I want to thank you for bringing this film because I do feel that this helps me to take that next step into what I'm trying to teach with this podcast, that through the lens of beauty, you can have different considerations about motivations, characters, situations, things that on the surface that would otherwise trigger you or cause you discomfort or cause you pain could be this knee-jerk response to just say, but it is just wrong. It is just worthless, you know? And a character like Barry is easy to write off as just base and not worth any analysis. But the analysis becomes really clear if you ask yourself this question, can I still see beauty in this? If you can answer yes, you have to ask yourself why. And that is where the real work comes into play. And that is where the connection between beauty and other discourses comes about. That's where the intersectionality comes into play. That's where I'm coming from is to kind of show there's still a space for these political discussions. There's still a space for the social discussions and for emotional discussions. And seeing the hierarchy of beauty and seeing the discussions on beauty And looking at the world through the lens of beauty doesn't take this away. It depends on your perspective and what you do with it. You could be an Aboria and a Berry and try to strive for your ideal of beauty and just lay waste the whole way through. This is where we get evil people in the world, that they have an ideal that they're trying to achieve. They want beautiful people around them with beautiful cars and whatever aesthetic that they enjoy. However, you could also see things from the viewpoint of the fact that there's still a semblance of beauty in something I find hideous and disturbing means that there's a complexity to this that I haven't actually given enough thought. And Barry's an easy, easy character to write off. And I think that this discussion has been a great example of how complex things can be if you take that step to unpack it just by saying, there's something tragic here. There's something melancholic. There's something beautiful to his existence. And it's, I loved that you brought up that shot because that's exactly the shot that I think tipped it for me as well is him looking just so aware of the fact that he was dead. Basically he was destroyed. He was unmade and now he was something new and he wasn't happy with it because he was pretty happy with who he was before. 
And you even see parts of him drifting away from him, this black goo kind of coming off of him. And he's just drained. He's a husk. And I found it so tragic to see that it was put upon him. And then we see who he is later in life. And he's still just pathetic and evil and horrible because he's pathetic, because he's been so drained by somebody else. He's been put upon. That word pathetic. I said the universe is pathos, emotion, Mm. feeling. We get the word path from it. We also get the word pathological. It's the path we walk. We do it and it is done to us. And, and I see Barry as someone who was given a very bad path. Very much so. Movies are the, uh, the, also the thing that keeps us separated from it. If we were around him in person, we'd be like, that's not beautiful. <laughs> I got to get out of here. Oh, no, no. That's, that's a threat. That's a different thing. And that's, I think that's the power of the genre is to show us something we shouldn't see in real life. But we're mm-hmm. allowed to see it when we put it in a case. Um, and this movie is a case. And I just I, I think it's perfect for your podcast because I think the, I think beauty cannot be seen. Beauty can be experienced, kind of like your terrible beauty. Experienced, yes. Yeah, terrible beauty quote. It's not. It's a confluence of sensation and experiences, and that it's not an image. It's an image with a lot of context to it. And ultimately, I believe it's impossible to describe. It's just felt, and that it's beautiful to share those feelings with other people and to have a community that can share it in art. But ultimately, it's kept from us. And I think just like Elena is kept from Barry and just like meaning in the universe is kept from Barry and he can't hand, he can't stand it. And that's the, one of the things that drives him um, is that he refuses to not grab beauty. I think that was a great way to close off. I want to thank you so much for this very thoughtfelt, intricate conversation. But we're going to wrap up then. So this podcast is a part of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. Be sure to follow the Anatomy of a Scream podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts, including The American Beyond, hosted by Justin Yandel and Chris Vander Kay, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, hosted by Terry Maynard and Joe Lipset, and much more. You can find more information at anatomyofascream.wordpress.com. If you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror, or just horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore shockaholic, and you can find my written work at Ghoulish Media and Morbidly Beautiful. Be sure to keep track of the podcast on Twitter and Facebook at Beauty Horror Pod. I want to thank David again for this lively and wonderful discussion. So where can the people find you? And is there anything going on that you might want to uh, plug or push or anything like that? I do have something going on. Oh, do tell. You can find me on Twitter. I'm more active on Instagram. I have a comedy horror video coming out, most likely by the time this podcast airs. It's in post right now. I filmed it in quarantine with the very amazing production company two lemon productions you can follow them on twitter or instagram i play a nightmarish doctor who is going to um uh, drag you into a cult (laughs) what a fitting character oh yeah it's going to be out it's going to be free um i'll be blasting it everywhere so if you follow me or two lemon (laughs) you'll you'll definitely see it we're very proud of it it's coming along really great All right. Thanks again, David. I had a blast talking about this and really checking out this movie was quite a treat for me as well. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us and talking about the beauty that lurks within the horror. Goodbye.
Scream Pod Squad.